welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Özbekuldova. Joining me today is Sun Haung, Assistant Professor of Communication at Simon Fraser University, to discuss his latest book, Technologies of Speculation, The Limits of Knowledge in a Data-Driven Society, published in 2020 with New York University Press. Welcome to the show, Sun Thank you. Great to be here. In your brilliant book, Technologies of Speculation, you address one of the most pressing questions today. Namely, what counts as knowledge in a world oversaturated with technologies of datafication, algorithms and artificial intelligence that more often than not sell false promises of technological neutrality and objectivity, often at the cost of unintended consequences, amplification of harms and rights violations. Throughout the book, you unpack the various limits of data-driven knowledge and point to the ways in which these limits provoke speculative processes that put uncertainties, flawed models, flaky numbers, prejudiced estimates, or dubious correlations to work in an attempt to satisfy the desire for and fantasy of epistemic purity and visions of technological objectivity, rationality, and certainty. You ask, how are we to know in a world of big data and endless correlations, a world increasingly lacking? in theory or an understanding of causation. And how are we to judge the data-driven truths and knowledge claims we are being bombarded with on a daily basis and exercise political and moral judgment? You make a convincing case for refusing technology's rules of the game and its rationality, showing that the knowledge uh, claims of datification are neither for the human subject and individual or for the rational public, but pursue their own economic and technological priorities. Rather than technology serving us, we are to be adapted to the machine ways of seeing and to the databases and the algorithmic judgments and architectures that surround us. You argue for disrespecting the rationality of technology, as the collective faith in the purity of data results in bypassing of important moral and political questions. Instead, you propose we hold technological rationality to account by terms other than its own and urge us to ask political questions of technology. A technological can does not automatically translate into human art. You argue that in order to escape the moral cage of technological thinking, we need to systematically refuse the idea that moral decisions can be codified and depersonalized, and we must ask political questions of technology. But we before we delve, in, delve into the book and trace the argument across the chapters, maybe you could further outline this key argument. How is politics and morality being reshaped by the rise of data-driven knowledge? And can we imagine other politics? Yeah, thank you, first of all, for putting this in terms of politics and morality, because that's exactly what I was thinking of in the sense that when we talk about so many of these technologies and we use words like big data and AI, we are often talking about them in very abstracted terms, right? So the kind of promise that we get out of them is the promise of mathematical certainty, of calculability, or of broad civilizational shifts such as the singularity. But if we think about it in terms of what do they mean for us? What do they mean for human beings? What do they mean for ordinary people? What do they mean for vulnerable people? Then I would argue that a lot of what we talk about with these technologies is a way of promising certainty, right? It's a way of promising that with data-driven knowledge, we would be able to make decisions that we don't have to question again. Uh, we'd be able to make decisions free of human subjectivity. That's the kind of promise. 
And when we look back, when we look into how those promises are then actually enacted um, and what lies in the wake of uh, big tech disruptions and so on and so forth, I think what often happens is we don't end up with the smooth technological surface of completely abstracted uh, uh, objective decision making. There's no human domain. There's no social domain in which something like that happens. What ends up happening is that we still get uncertainty, we still get speculations, we still get guesswork and improvisation and bureaucracy, but those things get manufactured into the status of fact. So if I just pick a really simple example, one of the you know most uh, controversial technologies today at this point is facial recognition. And we've had a lot of academic research even that tries to work with or work for law enforcement applications to say, maybe we can use facial recognition to detect criminals or even predict criminality. Maybe we can use this kind of data-driven surveillance to eliminate crime as per the popular show, Person of Interest. And, you know, the questions we can ask there should be along the lines of, I mean, certainty for whom? Because the very idea of predicting criminality through facial recognition, which remains a very popular idea despite being completely unfounded scientifically, it is based on the presumption that there are bad people, right? And that you're going to be able to divide people into good people and bad people. And the bad people, and, and, and then it's going to be the typical targets of law enforcement. It's going to be the homeless persons or persons with prior convictions. They become probabilistically sacrificed for our certainty. And I say our with quote unquote because there's always this idea that we are not the ones that are going to be surveilled. It is the the amorphous them. And then you go into that series of rationale um, where we create a sense of certainty around the idea of predicting and combating crime. And we're dividing people into us and them depending on which side we're on whether we're targets of the data collection process or we're the supposed consumers and beneficiaries of it. And what that ends up doing, and we can talk about this in more detail um, as we continue, is it actually takes the newest technologies, or sometimes not even the newest technologies, sometimes just the name AI. We slap it on a lot of statistical processes or even just human beings filling out forms by hand um, that is still replete with age-old prejudices and long-standing biases. And they sort of get repackaged into something shiny that we call AI, gets black-boxed. And it, that actually makes it much more difficult to go back and question what actually happened and whether it was the right decision to make. So what I try to do in Technologies of Speculation is to try and follow some of those places where speculation, guesswork, or long-standing prejudices become reprocessed into the status of a objective insight or a data-driven prediction, as we like to call it. And I try to consider some of the implications of that and say, what happens to this idea that we're supposed to know for ourselves or to, uh, to judge these technologies for ourselves or make our own decisions? if we're confronted with these kinds of systems that are deliberately obfuscated from public view and from individual knowledge. So that's sort of the 
some of the big questions that I try to throw out in terms of how I approach these technologies. Absolutely, and I think that uh, we are, you know, on a daily basis, constantly, basically told that data is beautiful, especially now in the COVID uh, context, right? That the data does not lie, the data is impartial, that it's not swayed by human emotions and irrationalities, all that you just kind of mentioned, and we are promised always better knowledge and better predictivity and so forth. And... Uh, uh, and uh, we are also told to trust and kind of delegate our belief, right? Uh, this is kind of this interpassive structure that you also <laughs> mentioned into uh, into this uh, data-driven evidence based on basically fueling technocratic politics, right? Uh, so rather than uh, or rather kind of pseudo politics, you don't really have politics anymore. You have kind of this technocratic regime that uh, and and this idea and vision of near real-time data-driven governance, which we're also increasingly seeing, where you constantly adjust decisions based on data flows that are coming from somewhere, right? So I would like to kind of know more about how you relate to this idea of, uh, of, of governance uh, in relation to, 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 to this kind of uh, technologies or speculations that you describe, right? Um, because uh, again, as you mentioned also now, it, what it does is it redefines what kinds of data and in whose hands uh, uh, should determine the truth of who I am and what is good for me, right? So who's got the power, who's got the data, how does governance and real-time governance work based on this data? And here in this context, you write of this duality of fabrications uh, when making sense of how data is kind of seizing the position of a truth maker. And I would say also a truth maker in, in, in the sense of, of governance and political governance. Uh, maybe you could expand what, on what you mean by this duality of fabrications and how are we to make sense of this, uh, of the proliferation of these kind of technological defaults, right? What is not to be questioned and, and so forth. And, and this kind of uh, manufacturing of data neutrality that is kind of surrounding us increasingly. Yeah. And I actually missed a little bit of your question because, of course, we're on Zoom and we're, again, <laughs> reliant on, uh, oh, this is another, uh, but I think I've caught the gist of it. And, and, you know, this is another episode in this kind of recurring present of the technological dream where we keep being promised self-driving cars, flying cars, drone delivery. But of course, we still can't even get uh, good old video conferencing flawless, <laughs> as, as we've all discovered over the last year, uh, year and a half. Um, and so, so that's one of the things, right? We're, we're never actually reaching there is no, um, and we're only dealing with making systems or governance systems completely purified of human beings. We're never reaching that point, and we're never going to reach that point. So that's the first thing, right? Um, any assessment of the impact that these technologies have, we have to think about what they look like today. The Zoom that we use today, the, the government forms that you're filling out today, the COVID vaccination registration systems, um, which are all hilariously broken in different ways across different countries, sometimes understandably so. Um, and we have to, so we have to look at what the technologies actually look like in the present. And the other side of that is we're never talking about machines versus humans, right? We're never talking about the data versus humans. I think that's one of the great fallacies. 
there's always going to be other human beings and institutions behind the machines and the numbers, right? Whether it's people who design the algorithm or people who pay for the algorithm or people who regulate the algorithm. And so for me, it's, it's never a question of what the data tells us to do or what the data says. There's this popular saying to just listen to the data and let the data speak for itself. The data never speaks for itself any more than an experiment speaks for itself any more than um, a highway speaks for itself, right? We know this from the studies of any kind of technology. What happens is that certain kinds of people will end up using the technology and end up speaking in its name. And so one of the threads I always try to follow is what kind of data is available, what kind of data is not available, and why? So, so again, one very, very broad example, a controversial example here in North America around uh, policing data is, of course, after, after the death of George Floyd, after the widespread protests, after the enduring calls to defund the police, one of the things that police departments around the U.S. began to do is to push back by producing a lot of media-friendly stories about a crime uptick in the U.S. So the implication was that we're seeing some kind of crime uptick. This must have happened because we defunded the police. Um, and now we're starting to see why the cops are actually necessary. There were several problems with that narrative. First of all, the cops in the United States continue to get an incredible amount of uh, funding. Um, there hasn't been any meaningful amount of, there, nobody's been defunded in the sense that nobody's been completely emptied of their wallets. Um, and second, statistically speaking, it's not clear at all that there has actually been any kind of uh, crime uptick. However, that's a good example of a point in time where official institutions are able to produce a certain kind of data, whether correct or fraudulent, and push it into the public consciousness and make it into a point of debate. At the same time, certain kinds of data are not available. So one of the things that happens regularly in the United States at the same time is that police unions actively work to destroy records of police misconduct. And they do that on a regular basis. The Chicago PD, uh, the Chicago Police Union was trying to do that and were stopped by the courts um, even as people were protesting police misconduct across the country. So there's a difference between what kind of data is available even in the first place as, uh, as ingredients for our governance or public debate or what have you, and what isn't available. And that question isn't a technological one. It's not. It comes down to who's able to commission or conceal or withhold or destroy the data. It doesn't matter that you put on body cams on cops if the cops have the wherewithal to turn off their body cams or to lead act and not release the information. So I don't talk directly about um, on the ground policing and the technology used there in my book. But, but for me, a lot of these con contexts are connected because when we talk about things like the NSA or transparency around government surveillance, which is something I do get into in the book, these things are all connected in terms of what kind of data is available and who is behind the data. And that should always inform our understanding of whether that's actually going to help us govern ourselves or govern other people in a more objective way. 
Indeed. And but the second question and related question to that is, I mean, uh, how are we to make sense of all the data? You know, you, mm. <laughs> right? As a as a public, as a supposed to be informed public, how are we to relate to this enormous uh, amount of uh, data coming our way and and claims, truth claims, and data driven truth claims? How are we to make sense of it? I mean, for a, yeah. for a critical algorithm studies person, it comes kind of naturally <laughs> to question all the sources of data, what is what is excluded, what is included, and who's got the power. But uh, for a general public, how does that? Yeah, and, and I think even for us researchers, um, it presents uh, something of an existential challenge, right? It's this idea of, I mean, I read a lot of the Snowden files, so to speak, the documents released by Edward Snowden, because of course I was writing a book partly about those, but I could never hope to actually go through all of those files myself. And I think Snowden ind indicated at some point, he basically Im Im implied that he himself had not read all the files because it was just humanly impossible. And, and, and so I think one of the things that we constantly run up to is it's not just about the volume of the data. It's not just about the technical sophistication of the data. It's also usually the political and institutional ways in which the data and the technology is concealed from public view. So think about how Facebook will always come and tell us, oh, we deleted 80% or whatever of COVID misinformation uh, last month. Um, and that number is usually complete hogwash because they will never tell us exactly what was deleted, how it was identified as uh, misinformation, and how do you even know if it's 80%? What have you done with the other 20% and why haven't you deleted it if you know exactly where it is? So, you know, I mean, we're pretty sure at this point that they're partly making it up as they go. Um, so it's always this question of the practical rather than sheer technological limitations on what we can know. And in the book, I talk about this as a sort of a dilemma of we're, we're supposed to be, I call it the good liberal subject. And I mean that in the same tone as you be a good kid while mommy's gone. Okay. You know, it's this idea of a, a obliging, compliant, uh, law abiding kid. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to diligently read the newspapers, ingest all the information about what's going on, read the terms of service. And then when we see something we don't like about our society, we exercise our free speech and get our politicians to sort that out. And lo and behold, by the market forces and representational politics, we will have a society that we have always wanted to live in, that we have chosen. That's sort of the... It's a narrative that we poke fun at. Maybe nobody quite believes it 100%, but it's still a narrative that we hang on to in many different ways, right? Um, Lauren Berlant calls this cruel optimism. It's where you believe in something like the American dream, even though it always proves you wrong and disappoints you every day, you still believe in it because you want to believe in the kind of values that it espouses. So we believe this idea of a liberal society where we're supposed to understand and make choices about these technologies. But I think practically, um, our ability to be a good liberal subject is being undermined at an existential level all across the board. And in the book, I talk about various ways in which happens. But but I can, I can give you one example which was really striking to me. Um, and this actually 
is about a slightly different topic, but this was when in the US um, there was another mass shooting, one of too many that we've had over the over recent years. And this was by a white mass shooter in Charleston um, who went into a predominantly African-American church and opened fire. And this person left a manifesto explaining his own radicalization. And one of the striking passages from there is when he says, I decided to Google something I saw in the news, and it was actually about the death of Trayvon Martin. And he decided to Google the words black on white crime. And he says the truths that he found there led him towards the views that he ended up having around race relations and policing and so on and so forth. What we don't know is if he understood that at least in the U.S. context, black on white crime has become an extremely partisan and a kind of a coded phrase. It's a very politicized phrase that people use to uh, advance this argument that there is no racial bias in American policing and that black people committing crimes and committing violent crimes is actually the real problem. So when you search for that, that's often going to lead you towards particular kinds of uh, resources online that's going to present you you with a fairly skewed view um, of, of what is a very, very partisan, very contentious debate in the United States. And for me, that was one example of a wider pattern where we've spent so long telling people, do your own research, don't trust what you read, uh, check multiple sources, come to your own conclusions. And implicit in all of that was this cultural belief or a philosophical belief that you could be a good liberal subject, that if you did your own research, you would figure out the right answer. And what we are seeing now with things like COVID denial or, um, or even the institutional weaponization of this kind of doubt through uh, uh, tobacco, big tobacco or big oil, what we're seeing here is that it's not that people are stupid. But it is that people are being confronted with situations where there's often a deliberate, well-funded effort to confuse them and lead them into the wrong direction, which, which is, again, what we know happens with something like tobacco or climate change related information. So for me, it is this crisis of how are we supposed to know anything for ourselves? How are we supposed to inform ourselves? And what the technology does is to accelerate the, about the technology itself that does it. It's not just that. Um, I think it's a function of the economics around the technology. So for example, the incentive that private corporations have to say that our algorithms are proprietary, we're not gonna reveal them to you. We don't want to show you exactly how it works. We don't even want government auditors to have full access to it. So there's that kind of commercial incentive is one example. Another example is when the government comes out, right? When, when Snowden leaks happened and there was an international uproar, um, one of the most consistent messages we got from Barack Obama, uh, from um, James Clapper, from the leaders of the NSA, from Dianne Feinstein, the Democratic senator, what we got from all of these government officials was the same message, which is we cannot tell you what technologies we're using and whether they have caught any terrorists or what have they done wrong, we cannot give you any of that information because to do so would, they would argue, jeopardize national security. So I think it's often about the institutional, commercial and political incentive to make it difficult for us to understand the technology.
it's not just that the AI or whatever is so complicated that we will never be able to figure it out. Sometimes, yes, that happens. But a lot of the times, I think the limitation isn't something technological we just have to accept. It's actually very much about power relationships and institutions. So in the first chapter of your book, I think this relates really nicely to this. Uh, uh, you speak of the historical trajectory of these techno fantasies and visions of mechanical objectivity, right? Uh, which basically kind of seek to to provide authority uh, in in this in this sense and of pure data. Uh, and then what I really like is uh, is uh, what I've been writing about myself is this fantasy of epistemic purity and this uh, this idea that you can purify yourself to truth. <laughs> and uh, here he used this uh, really nice concept of uh, groundless ground to show how datafication seeks to become our groundless ground, right? And I really, really like those concepts, but I think that they, they would need an explanation, uh, especially especially this uh, idea of groundless ground and how, how does it uh, relate in, to these kind of power relations and so forth that you just mentioned. Yeah, I, I can talk about the groundless ground, which is just a little adaptation of, um, it's, from, it's from Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, who was, he never completed this little book, but he was writing a set of notes that he called Uncertainty before he died. And it comes from that. And the, the I mean, the, he, he gives us a silly story, which is there's a tree, you see a tree, and let's say you've got your kid with you or something, and your kid says, you know, daddy, mommy, you know, um, how do you know that's a tree? And how would we answer that question? Right? And we feel like that's a simple question. We have a variety of ways to show the kid that it's really a tree. Um, but what we realize actually is most of the time, we are not able or willing to provide some kind of absolute logical certainty that this must be a tree. Right? We usually don't take the kid all the way over there to touch the tree, and then we don't enter into a biological or geological or, you know, scientific explanation of what a tree is. We don't cut the tree off open and run scientific experiments to try and figure out if it's a tree or something. You know, we don't go into all of that, right? We will simply take a variety of shortcuts, culturally acceptable shortcuts, like that's what a tree looks like. Didn't you see one in the book? This is what a dictionary says a tree is like. So we'll often take a bunch of proxies, right? So surprisingly, in most of our encounters in everyday life with any kind of information, whether it's simple, is it a tree, or complex, is are the COVID cases really going up or down, we usually cannot get to the absolute bottom of it ourselves. We just don't have time for that. We've got a life to live. So practically, we end up trusting certain proxies. And so Wittgenstein talks about this as a problem of how do we establish sort of the solid ground that we stand on for our knowledge. And in a typically Wittgensteinian way, he implies that we have no way to establish certainty about almost anything in our lives. Um, and usually we agree to think that there is certainty because that's what gives us the power to get stuff done. So imagine you're a kid, and we, we've all had this before, right? A kid keeps saying, how do you know that's a tree? You see this in the picture book. How do you know that's a tree? How do you know they're not lying? You know, they keep asking you until you snap and you say, you know, kid, shut up. It's a tree. Just just trust me, okay? 
And what the kid learns there is not some logical basis, but the kid realizes, oh, that's when you stop asking questions, right? To be a fully functioning adult or a member of society, oh, you're supposed to just believe some of these proxies. So I take this um, discussion that Wittgenstein has about trees and so on and so forth, and, and I talk about this in our context as the groundless ground, because I think that's often what we're working with. A lot of the things that we imagine or assume or believe about these technologies, how do they work? What are they going to look like 10 years on? Are they really objective? We are often practically unable to verify all of those claims with absolute certainty. And sometimes, even if we were quantum physicists with a lot of time in our hands, it simply isn't possible. So what we end up doing is we end up trusting in a lot of proxies that are made up of different kinds of narratives we built up around technology. So consider how Elon Musk is able to sort of come out and just say something like, oh, language is going to be obsolete within five years because of my new Neuralink technology, right? Oh, by the way, a prototypical technology that doesn't really do a whole lot of new things relative to what's already there in applications of neuroscience. Um, but he doesn't get laughed out of town. He gets international coverage, right? And a lot of people will take on this new information and understandably use it to update their ever-growing idea that AI is going to fundamentally transform our world very, very soon. Now, for me, these things are a lot easier to understand when we take a little bit of a look back at history and just go back just a few years, just a few decades. And for example, we'll find someone like Marvin Minsky, who is, of course, one of the founding pioneering figures of AI as a field, widely celebrated. And he can be found in the 60s, basically saying the problem of AI will essentially be solved in 10 years, right? He makes these promises back in the 60s. He says, we're going to figure it out. And the problem of intelligent robots, we're going to get there. Now, Marvin Minsky knew what he was doing. This was one of the ways in which he was grabbing a lot of funding from the military, mainly, um, and he was attracting a lot of talented people to his labs, and he was building up his own status and the status of his field into what we know today. So there is often a lot of strategic and, again, commercial incentive to create these beliefs about what technology is, and they end up becoming a kind of self-reinforcing loop. And if we go a little bit meta here, even the very idea of what these technologies will do, the idea that the AI will always predict exactly what you need, or that they're going to predict exactly who the criminal is, that again is a promise of a groundless ground. It's the promise that you're going to have this absolute bastion of certainty. You never need to worry whether you should have put that guy in prison or not, because the AI told you with certainty. And that's the bedrock that you can stand on. So it gives you this mythology of a ground. And I think one of the most important things we can do as critical scholars is to demonstrate the ways in which that ground is actually groundless. That doesn't mean that it's always bad to believe in something groundless. As I showed with the tree example, we're always believing in things we cannot ourselves prove 100%. So you cannot live your life by saying, I'll never trust any scientist about COVID or anything. I will always read all of the scientific literature and conduct all of the experiments myself. You cannot do that. So I'm not saying you should never trust anything. But what I am saying is 
these are decisions, value decisions we make about who to trust and what kind of stories to build our expectations around. And I think one of the biggest problems we have right now is we have become so accustomed to believing that if Mark Zuckerberg says something or if Elon Musk says something, it must be true, it must be happening, and it must be inevitable. Um, and it's about pushing back on that kind of habitual certainty that we've developed around what technology is supposed to be. Indeed. And you already mentioned uh, Snowden and the good liberal subject and so forth. And and what I really liked is uh, this concept that you uh, develop of this recessive, uh, of recessiveness and recessive uh, objects. And uh, you, I, you kind of uh, unpack what I really liked is you have these uh, two cases of the of the NSA or National Intelligence uh, actor and Snowden basically using the exactly same rhetoric, right? Uh, and I found it really nice. And and you write that the files are kind of credited with this radical transparency, but of course generates speculation and uncertainty for the same reason that you just mentioned that it's impossible to basically read them. It's humanly impossible, makes sense, and so forth. Uh, but uh, they also establish their status as this kind of irrefutable evidence by appealing precisely to the same aesthetics of uh, quantification and normalize a certain kind of paranoia. And re- I would really like you to speak a bit on this uh, on this double rhetoric that is basically identical in these two cases and and on this idea of paranoia and recessiveness. Yeah, yeah. The, the the example that you mentioned, there was a really strange moment where it wasn't happening exactly in the same day, but it was around the same time when Edward Snowden's doing all these interviews. And one of the things that he says is, you know, the danger that this government surveillance poses in our society. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but he says it's sort of like saying, you know, when you have some kind of danger, you take out insurance or you do something about it. You don't wait until the fire is burning your house down. And that's why we have to do something about the surveillance. Around the same time, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, is doing his own media circuit because he's trying to counter Snowden's media appearances, right? And one of the things that he goes out and says is, hey, I've had fire insurance for 40, 50 years. I've never had a fire. Am I going to keep paying for it? You betcha. Right. So he tries to use that same example of risk and insurance and fire to sort of push in the other direction and say, we need all of this surveillance to try and stop the next 9-11 or stop the next terrorist attack. And so we've got some a certain set of parallels going in seemingly opposite directions, but they are both relating to a certain fantasy of certainty that we have. Right. This idea of oh, we need to use surveillance, and if we do that, we can eliminate the problem of terrorism. We never need to worry about the risk of terrorism in the United States ever again, which, of course, is sort of an impossible point to get to, uh, but that is sort of the horizon that is projected. And then with the Snowden leaks and sort of the critical discourse that comes out of that, one of the implicit horizons that often gets invoked is this idea that the more we know, the better. And the public is going to, again, as I said before, that we're going to ingest all of this information and we're going to figure out what to do about it. And in both cases, there are gaps, right? We're never going to get to exactly that point of full transparency or full certainty or full prediction. And it is that those gaps are places where the really weird things start to happen. Because if you, I mean, if you work for the NSA or if you work for the FBI, 
because that's the more operational side of things. And you have this immense pressure from the highest echelons of government that says, we cannot have any more terrorist attacks. Then you're sitting there thinking, yeah, well, it's not like I was letting terrorist attacks happen before, you know, it's pretty hard. But the president keeps saying that everybody above me in the chain of command keeps saying that we've got to do something about this. So there's this political pressure to create certainty through surveillance. But of course, there is no way in which you can use any kind of technology or people to completely predict a terrorist attack, which by its very nature tends to be a very singular event each time, unfortunately. And so one of the things that happens when we look at the operational ins and outs of it is there is often a process where the folks at the FBI or elsewhere the intelligence agencies or the counterterrorism agencies, they're looking at the data that they do have, the suspicions that they have, the kind of the fluid human deliberations they have about terrorism suspects. And they need to somehow upgrade their judgment and their guesses and their intellig uh, uh, intelligence, literally, into something that looks more objective and certain um, in order to justify the arrest that they make or the funding that they get. And so when we look at that operational layer, we start to see that what we called big data or technology or surveillance using these big all-encompassing words, they start to look a lot more human and old school and fragile. Um, so there's one instance where the FBI agent are literally filling out something called the IMV survey. And that's just a literal survey, a questionnaire on a piece of paper that an agent will fill out. And that would be part of the data that they use to try and say, this person is a suspect, but do we need to go further and arrest them preemptively or do something else? And if you look at the survey questions, that's when you start to see at a really granular level some of the what we end up calling data. There's nothing about it that speaks for itself. It's got questions like, has the suspect gone through a divorce lately? Is the subject a recent religious convert? Now, that one's really interesting because think about what that means. That question might help you identify a jihadist who's recently been radicalized into certain radical Muslim beliefs, um, but it's never going to do anything to catch a domestic white supremacist, right? So you're already working certain prejudices. And the way I describe this in the book is they always talk about how the data is objective and you have to be ready for anything. But at a practical level, in a lot of the documentations and the questions they ask, it is already halfway presumed that they're looking for the brown Muslim killer. Even though in the years since 9-11, it's white domestic nationalist terrorism that's killed more people in the United States. So it's actually not a, it's not decision making that's just being driven by the data, right? And it gets to a point where one of the training slides that Snowden leaked in, in the NSA training slides, one of the placeholder names they use is literally Mohammed bad guy, right? So that's the fake name they're using to train their analysts on. So that's, you know, that's just one of those little instances where you see what gets ground into what later becomes represented as this is the data, or this is our prediction, or this is our intelligence. So 
I think it is in those gaps where a lot of that speculative activity happens. And that's exactly where a lot of those old prejudices, racial biases, um, or any other kinds of subjective and institutional practices, a lot of the old stuff makes up the new. It never comes out of nowhere. Indeed. And you just mentioned uh, while talking um, transparency. And uh, you have some really nice points on uh, on the, the transparency illusion and the mythologization of transparency. And we're increasingly, again, bombarded in the same way that we are bombarded with data, with this idea of transparency. And then uh, we are to be transparent to the system that's basically opaque <laughs> for mm -hmm. us. But uh, and you have uh, and, and you also write, and I think that's a right, right observation that uh, transparency uh, is dangerously close to political cynicism. <laughs> I think hmm. that's, a, that's a good point. And uh, just to quote you, I think it's a really nice quote. Uh, you write that the idealization of transparency risks conflating exposure with truth and expression with honesty. In doing so, it encourages speculation of a promiscuous kind, one that erodes and overrides existing norms for the boundaries of relevance and credibility. Uh, so uh, what does this uh, push towards transparency do to, to knowledge and truth claims again? I mean, it's a kind of circular question, but you can expand <laughs> further on, on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and this is a tricky topic. This is a tricky topic because we're used to thinking about transparency as the good guy, um, um, that's a gender term, but, but you know, the, the, the good actor in, in these scenarios, right? It's supposed to be the thing that fixes a lot of these problems. Um, but I also think that there's something, I mean, isn't there something suspicious you can start to think about how transparency gets trotted out as the universal solution to so many different kinds of technological problems that we have. And I guess to put it really simply, the argument that I make is transparency is also labor. Transparency isn't just something that you do and then people are empowered. It can be empowering, but it's also a lot of work. Right. And so we've had this debate. We learned this, um, I think, the most clear. Uh, we learned this most clearly with the debates around platforms and terms of service. Everybody knows that you're never going to be able to read all the terms of service. And if you did, it wouldn't really give you any power to contest those terms. The only choice you have is to exit the platform, exit social relations, and basically to miss out on huge chunks of society. So it's not much of a choice at all. So the point here is that when we pushed through with the idea of transparency, what that did was it allowed the companies to offload a lot of responsibility onto the individual. It allowed them to say, okay, we don't have any responsibility anymore because when they agreed to these terms of service that are harder to read than the Dostoevsky, um, that they, they agreed to it. They allowed us to now do everything we're, we said we're going to do. So what it does is ignore the power dynamics between a massive multinational corporation with arms of uh, armies of lawyers writing these terms of service and the individual who is supposed to sign on the dotted line. And so I think when we think about transparency as labor, it's one way to get a better appreciation of whether it's a realistic solution to push for more transparency. Sometimes it can be, it can definitely be helpful, but I think a lot of the times there's a ceiling to how much it can do for us. And the corollary to that, the, the follow-up to that is, if transparency is labor, who is making whom do the labor, right? So in that previous example, it's multinational corporations 
that are making individuals do the work. And I think, again, it's that flow that happens over and over again. It's the governments that say, we are going to defund a lot of these services, and it's sort of up to the public or civil servants, uh, sorry, uh, civil society to fill the gap and audit us and interpret our data for us and tell us what we are doing wrong. Um, and we saw elements of that with how COVID unfolded in the sense that in the U.S., um, the government capacity to produce basic data around the spread of COVID in the United States in, in the early months of 2020, um, it simply wasn't there for a variety of reasons, right? Um, it was also handicapped for a variety of reasons. And what you saw was academics or journalists or activists and members of the public essentially doing unpaid work in their own free time to try and put together some information. Um, and they did fantastic work. They did amazing work. But you cannot rely on that every single time, right? You cannot rely on the unpaid labor of, of those kinds of people every single time. So for me, transparency can be an enormously helpful, uh, um, helpful instrument in terms of what we do about these technologies. But we are already at a stage where it gets co-opted a lot of the time as a way to offload responsibility and labor onto people other than ourselves. And it becomes a way to say, well, you do the work and you tell us what's wrong. You tell us what's wrong with the NSA or you tell us what's wrong with Facebook. We may or may not get around to fixing it. Um, and, and, and what I really like is the way uh, um, Whitney Phillips has put it um, in, in her work. Um, and one of the things that she points out is this old, it's more, it's more, it's very, it's a very American chestnut, but it's the old American saying that transparency is like sunlight and sunlight is a disinfectant, right? There's this very pervasive idea that if you make something transparent, it's like shining a light and, you know, light is better than darkness and you wipe away all the corruption and evil. And she pushes back on that, uh, Whitney Phillips, to say, no, it, it is, it is not a disinfectant, right? It really depends. It really depends on whether we have the power and the resources to actually make use of that information. Indeed, but when it comes to transparency, I, what I really like about your book is that it kind of oscillates between these examples of surveillance and it goes to self-surveillance and this quantified self-movement, which is based on the same idea that you're to be transparent to yourself, right? So, so it kind of conditions people more and more to, into thinking these, uh, in these terms and also in these terms of behavioral engineering almost of the self, right? Uh, maybe you could say something about how these uh, two uh, logics uh, intersect and... Uh, yeah, the the book itself goes through a weird metamorphosis where half of the book roughly talks about the Snowden affair and this kind of state surveillance in a counter-terrorist context. Um, and then the other half of the book roughly focuses much more on what initially smells very different. Uh, it's the self-tracking domain. It's technologies like Fitbit, Apple Watch, emotion tracking, sleep tracking. So these things are divorced from the whole politics of terrorism, at least initially speaking, um, and they feel initially a, a lot more friendly, right? They're consumer tech. They're, they're supposed to be things that we own and we control. And, you know, it's, it, it feels very nice, right? Oh, look at my own sleep data. Look at my own exercise data. 
Now, I think in the last few years since I, uh, I was working on the book, I think the connections have become a lot more clearer thanks to, for example, the reporting around Amazon Ring, which is a really great example of how something that is initially sold as a consumer gadget can become a device by which extremely private data becomes circulated to police departments around the country, as well as Amazon itself. Um, so, so, I mean, thank you for emphasizing that other point, which is when we talk about transparency there, yeah, there's a lopsidedness to it, right? So the corporations and the government and these algorithms, they seek to be as non-transparent as possible. They want to be opaque for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that they will always demand of us is to be more transparent. So the, right now, the, the dilemma is that the more vulnerable you are, the more transparency is demanded of you. And this is a historical pattern, right? Historically speaking, um, scholars like Sarah Ego, who has a wonderful history of privacy, um, um, a, a book that came out a couple of years ago, um, does a really good job of covering this. But when you're being imprisoned, when you're an immigrant, when you're at the border being searched by the TSA, when you're a student taking an exam through Proctorio, when you're in these relatively vulnerable, powerless situations, one of the markers of power is to force you to be transparent, right? So there's this asymmetry of it's hard for me to get data about what my boss is doing, but my boss is always going to have much more data about what I'm doing. If you're an Amazon warehouse worker, it's super hard to figure out what the managers do. And it's really hard to figure out what even my own performance metrics are, but they will know exactly how many seconds I am in the bathroom and they will try to fire me for it, right? So it is that asymmetry of transparency and it plays out not only in those captive situations, but I think increasingly the same logic is playing out in, the, in our personal lives and everyday lives. So the example that I give in the book um, that I think is a really telling one is Fitbit, which is you know, Fitbit, the exercise tracking wristband, we all know it now. I think it's become something of a household name. It's been very, very successful. And the initial logic around Fitbit, if you look at some of the marketing and things like that, was control your own data, right? Empower yourself with data. You're a go-getter. You're someone who exercises. And, and I always found this interesting as someone who's who, who can't do any of that, right? Uh, you, you can never make me go to the gym. So I'm watching there, looking at how Fitbit is appealing to people's sense of, you know, diligence and self-control and, and self-improvement and, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really nice things. And that's how Fitbit initially spreads across our households all over the world. However, sooner or later, Fitbit also needs new horizons of growth, uh, this being capitalism. And one of the things they started to do in around 2015 is they started to partner with insurance companies, companies like Progressive and John Hancock. And what they start to do is they, all start, they start to say, we'll give you a free Fitbit or we'll, we'll give you some other incentive if you share your exercise data with us, your insurance company. Now, at present, they don't use that data to recalculate your premiums. They don't do something like, oh, you're not exercising hard enough this week. We're going to put up your insurance premiums. They're not doing that yet. But we can see that is the kind of logic that is already latent. And one of the frontiers that we're going to start hearing more about the next few years, I promise you, we're hearing about it already, is with cars. Because with the smartification of cars, 
which again, initially is sold as, you know, you making choices to get more data and more uh, technological gadgets, that opens up new ways in which we can monitor people and to punish and judge them for it. So we're already seeing instances in which rental cars can be turned on and off remotely, for example, uh, if they have failed to top up um, and, and pay for the next hour. Um, we are going to be able to see a lot more instances in which car telemetry is used used to recalculate people's insurance premiums or used against them in court as an alibi. That's already been happening in a couple of isolated cases. So what we're starting to see here, my point is, a lot of the technologies that are presented to us as empowering things for our own use, and let's remember Uber was like that too, be your own boss. They create new opportunities for that asymmetry where the corporations or the institutions or the or your boss is going to have a lot of data about you and they can choose later on what they'd like to do with that data so i call that control creep in the book um, mirroring our well-known words like function creep right it's this sense that if you create the data for one purpose it's inevitably going to get used for a bunch of other purposes down the line and both of us uh, working in universities one of the things we know is coming along with that is online proctoring, right? So you introduce this kind of insidious video surveillance of students um, during the pandemic. There's no way this is going away, right? Because there's every commercial incentive for these companies to try and continue their lucrative contracts with university administrators. And so we're going to see more ed tech that claims to be smart or AI driven and, you know, they'll, they'll tell us a lot of other words, like improve the student learning experience, a, a phrase that nobody in history has ever figured out what it actually means. And it becomes a way of creating more opportunities for data collection. And the students will often have practically no choice about it. Yes, uh, uh, we are seeing an incredible boost uh, of this kind of market, right, uh, in a pandemic situation. And uh, Especially, I think in in the workplace, the surveillance technologies and analytics for for the management, and uh, yeah, there is this um, uh, even compliance. I've been re recently started looking into the compliance industry, and you know, we now even have these kind of automated uh, systems for compliance in the workplaces, right? Where you basically can code all kinds of rules, and and it automatically spots who kind of breaches internal ethical guidelines, you know, if you use okay. bad language, you know. So even 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 signs or suspicion of, uh, you know, you kind of do some linguistic analysis on what the emails you're sending, you know, it flags things automatically in kind of in real time, right? And you can also already generate forensic evidence for anything that has happened, right? So, so you have everything that is happening within a company uh, already stored, right? So there's there's this enormous uh, companies like that in the US doing this kind of uh, this kind of compliance. So even this uh, idea of this kind of compliance of this regulatory business, right, is is basically. Uh, outsourced to, to these automated technologies, so you don't. You know, even when you comply, you kind of delegate the compliance to the automated system, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You define some rules for that, and and you can change these rules at any point you want as a company. And of course, uh, you can kind of uh, even you have this uh, internal threat systems for workers, right? Where you kind of try to risk assess workers: are they going to pose an internal threat and so on? So this is the same kind of predictive logic that you find in predictive police 
that then goes into compliance, right? The one thing that should be compliance with laws that are external basically mm, becomes mm. a tool of surveillance of the workers inside the companies. And uh, this brings me to kind of this, uh, this, uh, this delegation uh, logic, this delegation of responsibility, delegation of belief even, right? And, and this kind of structures of interpassivity that you describe in your book, I think in relation to the Snowden case, and this kind of uh, this kind of subjunctivity. Uh, I was wondering if you could say something about this uh, this logic of subjunctivity of this as if, right? Uh, I think it kind of uh, lines up uh, with this uh, with this idea of delegation of uh, knowledge and delegation of responsibility and this kind of outsourcing logic that kind of underlies all these technologies. Yeah, I, I really love the way that you're threading together um, delegation with the subjunctive, um, which is which now I think about it is, is something I should have done in the book. Um, but, you know, this is how this is how we learn about our own books as we as we talk about it. Um, so so to start with the subjunctive, I mean, in the book, I talk about that in a fairly limited way. It's something that it really stuck out at me in discussions around the Snowden affair. And that's where it came from. Um, because one of the difficulties here is when we talk about these technologies, it is very hard for us to talk about certain kinds of harms or consequences because they are seen as intangible. Um, so even at a legal level, so, so maybe this will make it concrete, um, when the Snowden leaks happened, um, bodies like the ACLU um, came to try and file some lawsuits against the government, against the NSA, to try and um, halt or to introduce more accountability to these surveillance systems. And the, one of the legal bottlenecks that they ran into um, was the U.S. legal definition of harm. I'm not a legal scholar, so this is going to be a very basic uh, uh, um, gloss on it. But the essential gist of it is that in many cases, the US law requires you to be able to identify harm that is tangible um, and can be, and, and, and it requires the victim of that harm to bring the case forward. So in the case of what we call dragnet surveillance, this idea that the NSA is ingesting huge volumes of data through fiber optic cables, literally, um, and is has the capacity to monitor your communications at any given time. But you don't know exactly what they're doing. You don't know if your email as precisely has been seen by a human being or has been used or not in what way. So the challenge there was often the courts will come back and say, do you have standing to bring this case before us, the ACLU or somebody else? Can you show that you specifically have had your life ruined because someone at the NSA looked at your emails? And of course, that is very, very difficult to show given the nature of how these surveillance systems work. So there was an, that was an example of how a certain kind of subjunctive logic of an as-if logic was not acceptable to the kind of judiciary system we have in place. And that happens in public debate as well, where we are very used to saying, what if there is a terrorist on the New York subway system tomorrow? What if that person was going to blow up a bomb and kill people? So we're, we're, we're very used to practicing subjunctive as if thinking, um, which is really a kind of a special grammar because it makes you develop feelings and opinions and ideas on the basis of something that you know hasn't happened, right? 
Um, so it's the the internet equivalent is the now a very old phrase, big if true. So if someone says, you know, here's here's something that happened in France, um, and you don't know if it, if this is real or fake news, but you'll say big if true, right? It's it's your way of saying I'm going to be excited, or I'm going to think this is hilarious, or I'm going to have some kind of response to it. I'm going to think Trump is an idiot, whatever. Even though I admit that this may or may not be true, right? So this is what the subjunctive does to us, and we're very good at doing the subjunctive for certain kinds of scenarios, like the next terrorist attack. But we are often、uh, very resistant to other kinds of subjunctive scenarios. So that's where I think the asymmetry、um, is is enforced at a cultural level, at the level of the imaginary. If it's easier. To imagine uh,、um, episodes of, if it's easier to imagine the war on crime or this idea of crime running amok in the streets of America, despite the fact that crime in America has generally been falling for decades、uh, at a consistent rate, if it's easier to imagine that compared to imagining that a cop could、uh, a, a cop could violently assault an innocent person, then. That's a result of certain cultural pressures around what we are asked to imagine. So I think the subjunctive is often a part of that. It, it, the subjunctive is a question of what kind of technological outcomes we tend to think about when we when we debate these issues, and and I think it connects really well to what you were talking about in terms of delegation. Because there is also another kind of、um, imaginary going on here, which is. If you're talking to people who are the managers and the bosses, and they're conducting workplace surveillance, and you ask them what is going on with these automated systems, or you know what is going on with these draconian surveillance systems, what you get here is they will delegate the responsibility to the algorithm, but they will not delegate the power. So what you see is the workplace surveillance person will say, "Well, it's the pandemic. Everybody's working from home. I don't know if they are stealing my wages from me. I don't know if they are, you know,、uh, slacking off on my time on the company's time, and so I need to have their webcam take a photo of them every sixty seconds and automatically send that over to me and the company, which is a real example of a workplace surveillance system right now." So they will talk about that, and they will talk about that level of the subjunctive. And then, when you challenge them on the decision, they'll be able to say, "Well, it was the algorithm doing it, or it was the automated system doing it. I don't really know how it works." But what they retain throughout is their power to choose what kind of scenarios we are going to build our real worlds around. So the boss gets to say, "I'm going to imagine a world in which you are cheating." In an exam, or you are stealing from the rack when you're working at Zara, or you are slacking off when you're a white-collar office worker, and it is on the basis of that scenario that I've created that I'm going to produce all of these real-world quote-unquote solutions. So for me, again, it comes back to that aspect of who gets to imagine the scenarios on which our technologies are built, and who doesn't. Right, and who gets to justify their imaginations or assumptions through the force of data and objectivity? Indeed, and、uh, and I think this relates also to this kind of、uh, shift in the 
in how we think risk and the risk management and this uh, idea of zero risk, right? which basically means that you create a society of total control, which is a society of total transparency as well. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you kind of position the other as always suspicious, as always a threat, right? You can never imagine an honest worker, you always imagine a dishonest worker and the whole system is going to be built around the idea of the risk, potential risk and potential risk of of dishonest uh, person and and I really liked your discussion uh, on on this idea of zero tolerance and zero risk and I think this is you know this has expanded from after 9/11 to about every area of social life and now with the corona crisis this is clear but but also in the workplaces we're seeing zero tolerance for harassment now how do you define harassment right this becomes incre incredibly problematic as well and but you kind of create systems that are rather oppressive and again precisely defined by this delegation of responsibility to certain systems or procedures, even bureaucratic procedures. It doesn't have to be uh, technological, right? So you delegate this kind of uh, this kind of responsibility, but again, as you nicely point out, retain the power. And I think that uh, one thing that always kind of struck me is like, does anybody really believe in this? <laughs> Right? Are they are they kind of true believers in in data objectivity? Uh, like there are so many critical voices. Uh, 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 Ordinary people, uh, who, however you want to call them, uh, uh, even these conspiracy theorists uh, that are they are being called, what they are calling into question is how are these data made, right? This is a basic question that we are also asking. This is a question that we kind of share, and uh, and so so you get this idea: are there really uh, these kind of naive believers, or is it always already a cynical system that kind of fuels this kind of power? dominance right because uh, as you nicely say well it allows me to delegate responsibility well the police uh, and, and we, we are doing some research on, on police in Norway and other places as well and predictive policing and uh, they know that the data that goes in uh, they either punch it themselves so they know it's <laughs> kind of biased right uh, and and then goes to an analyst and it returns they know that it is not objective right they are not being right. fooled by that and yet they are very happy to take a kind of risk assessment and point to a certain number assigned to a certain person and then act on it right so uh, so but they are not naive right they are not mm -hmm. really uh, brainwashed into thinking in any sense that this is really objective and uh, but it is really a kind of ideological fantasy right so that is that is disavowed right so they it follows this structure of uh, i know quite well this is not very objective but nonetheless i prefer to <laughs> to act as if it were right so so this is mm -hmm. where you get this kind of uh, uh, subjunctive uh, logic uh, <laughs> accompanied by disavowal so so uh, i was thinking how do you break with this kind of narrative of objectivity when uh, when knowledge kind of does not attempt does not make it right so knowledge doesn't break with ideology uh, we know that because precisely of this structure i know quite well so what <laughs> so mm. uh, so uh, so and this is i think why all kinds of these kind of transparency initiatives maybe also tend to fail because they appeal to knowledge right uh, but if you know already that knowledge does not do it what do you do then right and i think that this is where you kind of have to return to certain political uh, ideas of what kind of life do you want what kind of life is worth living and so on and you kind of have to uh, bypass these uh, these kind of knowledge claims because when you are trapped in this kind of cynicism you're unable to get out of it that's what i kind of feel and you and, and what i kind of see is that the technology allows is the kind of 
enormous proliferation of modes of delegation and the kind of and also this kind of deferral, right? Uh, and and this uh, and this. Uh, uh, idea of you know the the manipulation of the futures, which I think matches also nicely with the financial markets, right? It's all about speculation and so on. So this is so paradoxical, and I think that your book does it wonderfully, matching this kind of uncertainty and speculation with this kind of fantasy of certainty and objectivity and rationality, where this is actually turns out to be uh, precisely the opposite. <laughs> if you uh, so uh, and uh, towards the end in your book you talk about this uh, epistemological. Tyranny. <laughs> I thought it was quite uh, nice. Uh, where kind of what looks and sounds like data is always privileged over everything that does not. And I was thinking, okay, th this is really true, right? They're like you're not being heard if you're a humanities scholar or, or, uh, or, or, and so forth, because you're told you you don't have the numbers. Like we're seeing it in research increasingly, we are to team up with quantitative researchers because you know they have the numbers, right? So they can back up your silly social scientific uh, humanistic claims, right? So, so you always kind of tend to privilege this, uh, this, this quantitative, quantitative uh, logic and this idea of, uh, I don't know, uh, efficiency, optimization, and so on. But, uh, but you no longer ask, do we want optimization? Like, is optimization of health the ultimate goal of my life? <laughs> right? <laughs> do I really want to die in order to optimize my health? <laughs> So forth. So, so uh, I was thinking maybe on the final note, you could say something about this. Uh, you know, how do we regain a certain idea of sovereignty vis-à-vis -vis this type of epistemological tyranny of uh, data and and so forth and this kind of fantasy of objectivity? <laughs> yeah, I, I, there, there, there's a lot. There's a lot here, and I could talk about this in a number of ways. But but if I try to pick one, I think. A lot of the times we get sucked into what I also call the technological default. So we let's say there's a, you know, you're fighting about, you're arguing with somebody about the latest technological innovation. Um, and, you know, the other person will say it's great and it's going to help us out. Someone like me, the curmudgeon I am, um, I am usually in the position of saying maybe it won't, you know, maybe there are certain harms. Now, the problem with that is we're already in a technological frame, right? We're already in a frame where we're thinking about the new technology as inevitable. We're thinking about our society as primarily controlled by the advancement of these new technologies. Um, and if the technology is very bad, um, then it is usually reasoned that with more data, which means more money for these corporations and which means more social importance, then they will be able to eventually eliminate any kind of problem. So we're already having that whole discussion within a certain worldview that says anything can be data, anything can be predicted, and everything can really be solved with artificial intelligence, right? So. Um, Nabil Hassan had a really uh, Nabil Hassan had a really good critique uh, way of putting this uh, several years ago in terms of facial recognition. When so this was when facial recognition was suddenly exploding as a public controversy, and one of the ways it was happening was through the work of Joy Bolamwini and Tim Nikibru, their gender shades paper, which showed that the leading facial recognition technologies were actually hugely and inaccurate with basically anybody that other than white men. And it was especially inaccurate with black people. 
And of course, then the whole discussion happens around why is it so inaccurate? Is it 50%? Is it 60%? How much would be accurate enough? And that whole discussion is bonkers because Nabuhasan reminds us it would be even more of a problem if the facial recognition system was extremely accurate against black people. Why? Who's going to use it in the United States? Who are the leading buyers of this technology? Look at something like Clearview AI. Who is paying for that technology? Even after all of the controversy, it still hasn't slowed them down. They're raising huge amounts of funding. They don't care. They're, they're eating it up. So what we realize then is the very moment you get suckered into discussion of whether it's accurate enough um, or whether it's just a little bit biased or not, um, at some point it becomes a trap because we're no longer asking the more fundamental question of should it even exist? Now, let me note here that with facial recognition, we did have to go through that process. Uh, Bolamwini and Gibru's work was really, really important. And those same scholars, along with others, also helped us get to the other side of the debate. And now I think it is much more possible to have that question of maybe we should just get rid of the technology. Maybe we should put a moratorium on that technology, right? We have seen some real leeway in public and policy discussions. So I'm not saying that it's bad to talk about bias or anything like that. But I'm saying that we always have to be aware that technological corporations, for example, will always try to foreclose the discussion and say, oh, you're saying we need to become more accurate. We'll be glad to do so as long as you keep sending us venture capital. Right. And and, and so I think it's about applying external standards. Um, it's about this idea that technology will always come to you and give you its own tests. So it will come and say, hey, look, I wrote a test for myself. Now I'm going to take it and I'm see what, what a high score I get. Aren't I great? That's what Facebook does all the time. It always sets its own standards and then it says it passed and then it congratulates itself, right? And it always pushes back when anyone else tries to apply any of their own values or standards. And I think one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book, especially at the end, was push this idea that instead of just rushing for uh, solutions where we are trying to correct these technologies, um, we have to clear the space to make it easier to raise those fundamental questions, including what we've done so far with facial recognition. Um, because I think the problem is, the problem isn't that the technologies that we have are too perfect. I want to make that clear. The problem isn't that we're going to have AI that's going to take over and uh, make humans obsolete within 5, 10, or even 20 years. The problem is the opposite. The problem is that our technologies have constantly been incredibly flawed and incompetent. Facebook is not a threat because it is so good at what it does. Facebook is a threat because it is so bad at what it does, right? Um, and if you look at facial recognition too, I mean, think about it this way, right? Some people will say, oh, well, but it's very accurate against white men and it's just inaccurate against certain other groups. Well, listen, if your technology can't even identify the majority of the world's population correctly, we usually wouldn't call that a flawed technology. We would usually call that a piece of bullshit technology that nobody would even glance at until you have really reworked it on a fundamental level, right? Um, so I think what we have done is we've become used to giving technology a free pass, and it's become very difficult to 
reorient public and policy debate into holding technology accountable in a different way. And I think including what we've done with facial recognition and with policing, um, I think that's actually very hopeful, right? When I was finishing the book in around 2018, um, the conversation wasn't where it is now, whether in the US or elsewhere. So I think there's a lot more we can do, uh, but it is definitely possible to talk about and think about technology in a different way. And it is definitely possible for people to not listen to the latest promises from technology companies or surveillance outfits and simply believe it. Um, so I don't think it's a fat, fatalistic question at all. I don't think it's a question that everyone's always going to buy the next iPhone, not necessarily. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversations we can encourage or help give depth to um, from the position of being a scholar. Brilliant. I think this is a wonderful last words. <laughs> so thank you for joining me today. And, <laughs> and this was Sunong on his recent thank book, you so much. Technologies of Speculation. And uh, yeah, thank you and thanks for listening.